And we're live. Hello, and welcome to Debut Spotlight. I'm Rachel Berenbaum, author of the forthcoming novel, Atomic Anna. And I'm super excited for my guest today. His name is Sequoia Nagamatsu, and his amazing debut, oh, there it is, we both have it. <laughs> How high we go in the dark, just dropped. It is so good, it's being reviewed everywhere. All kinds of people have things to say about it. And today we're gonna hear what Sequoia has to say about it. I can't wait. So before we hear from him, let me just introduce him quickly. Hello, Sequoia. Hello. Reading from his bio, it says, Sequoia Nagamatsu is a Japanese-American writer and the managing editor of Psychopomp magazine. Originally from Hawaii and the San Francisco Bay Area, he holds an MFA in creative writing from Southern Illinois University. He's the author of the award-winning short story collection, Where We Go When All We Were Is Gone. And his work has appeared in such publications as Conjunctions, The Southern Review, Ziziva, Fairy Tale Review, and Tin House, among others. He currently lives in Minnesota with his wife, their cat, and a robot dog named Calvino. Yes, I will ask him about Calvino. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Sequoia. Hello. Tell us. So happy to have you here today. Tell me, what is this beautiful, beautiful book about? Well, um... That's a long story, but in a nutshell, it's uh, a multi-generational journey that spans continents and, um, you know, centuries um, of people uh, reimagining grief and trying to hold on to hope in the aftermath of a climate plague. Yes, there is a plague in this novel. Um, I wrote it pre-COVID, but uh, by and large, uh, the story is focused on the everyday the small actions that people take to um, really just wake up the next morning and try to reimagine their futures. I love that. I also love that you make the point, and I've seen this in uh, other interviews that I've read with you, that these chapters from this book have been published for years, right? Mm -hmm. Well before pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. So you were more sort of looking into a future than writing is inspired by COVID. But I mean, I have to ask, what's it like to launch a book like this during COVID? It's surreal. Um, I mean, when my agent and I were deciding to even go out with this, we we're like, should we or should we not? Um, ultimately, we we pushed forward and we found some wonderful partners that understood the humanistic vision for the book. Um, but I think you know it, it's published at the right time. If there is ever a right time to publish a book during the pandemic, um, because I think in year three of COVID, people are finally starting to want to engage in conversations about what the future might be and how this time has actually changed us um, irrevocably um, because it has. Yeah, yeah, I like, I, you scared me for a moment there, year three. That's mm -hmm. still, yeah. oh my God, <laughs> really? Um, so before we dig into the sort of the meat of the story that I really wanna ask you about, um, I first wanna ask about the structure because this is very much a uh, set of sort of stories or scenes from people who are dealing with at first the um, discovery of the plague and then, or the sickness, and then right sort of the fallout over the years. So do you think of it as a story collection? So how does it, how does it sit in your mind? Um, I, I think maybe um, a novel and stories is, 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 is an apt description for it. Mm -hmm. um, I think because I think if you're calling it a story collection, people are apt to maybe skip around or, or you know, sort of like see each chapter as standalone pieces. And while you might be able to look at, okay, a certain chapter as having a certain, you know, being able to give you some kind of joy or fulfillment, 
um, there is a larger narrative. You know, there are characters that are related to each other that connect. There is an evolution of world. And there's also a narrative thread um, that holds everything together that, um, you know, you come to realize by the time you get to that last chapter. And so there's a lot of Easter eggs and a lot of hints that I've dropped throughout um, that people would miss out on if they treated it like a story collection and certainly if they read out of order. Yeah, I love that, a novel in stories, because mm -hmm. I've read a bunch of the reviews that have come out, um, and I've read different descriptions, but I think novel in stories mm -hmm. is the most, the yeah. best. We'll go with what mm -hmm. the author says on yeah. this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I wanted to read um, this one passage uh, where it, you begin with a father um, basically is mourning the loss of his daughter. She's died around the discovery of a Neanderthal little girl. Um, and uh, I guess this is sort of the beginning of what unleashes the plague. I'm not giving away any spoilers. This is like the first few pages of the book, okay? Um, and he's standing there and he writes a letter to her. And I just wanted to read one of the very moving lines. Um, so this is very early on in the book. And it says, uh, he writes, you saw a future of dead soil and dead oceans, all of us fighting for our lives. You had a vision of what life would be like for future generations and acted like the planet had a gun to our head. And maybe it does. I was always so proud of you, but it took Siberia, a quarantine, and the mystery of a 30,000-year-old girl to help me realize that. Maybe tonight I'll look at the stars and make up a new constellation for the both of us. A woman standing at the precipice of a great chasm. I'll be here with you. So... First, I love that because there's the emotion, right? Mm -hmm. And I really feel the mourning and the sadness, right? His reaching to his daughter, but also it gives us sort of in a nutshell how you are looking at our world, right? That we are holding, you know, a gun to the earth, right? Um, to our head. And I wonder if you could talk about that and the inspiration of, you know, environmental destruction in this book. Yeah, I mean, like I have a, um, a kind of a past uh, with environmental activism and, you know, um, climate change, forest issues have always been near and dear to my heart. So, um, you know, injecting those messages into the book was always a consideration of mine. Um, but when I was thinking about the plague narrative, I think it made sense to me that the plague was an apt metaphor for climate change. Um, and certainly how we respond to something like a pandemic there are some very clear parallels to how we respond or, or not, how we ignore certain things regarding, um, you know, this plague or, or, or in our world, COVID-19. COVID um, I think with that particular um, line that you just read, I wanted to really highlight the fact that, you know, even though that narrator is a scientist, um, the primary focus is essentially their hearts. Yeah, I'm never privileging their roles in the government or society at large. I'm almost always privileging their relationships and the quieter moments of when they go home versus how they're solving um, or racing to uh, find a cure. This isn't Dustin Hoffman in an outbreak. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I have to tell you, so a few years ago, I remember before COVID, right, long mm -hmm. before COVID, I started reading about fears of the permafrost melting yeah. and what was going to, you know, come up mm -hmm. in the sludge. And this is not something that, I mean, although you're brilliant, mm -hmm. you did not invent this idea, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. right, that mm -hmm. disease and plagues might come up mm -hmm. and defrost from there. Um, so I was wondering, where did you start, you know, reading about it or thinking sure. about it? I remember the 60 Minutes episode that I saw mm -hmm. very clearly where they right. showed right? This guy up there working to maintain the permafrost to keep back the plague. Yeah, I feel like we keep seeing more and more articles about yeah. this. Um, but it was in 2014 when the plague narrative sort of entered the project. 
and it was a in an, an Atlantic article um, about um, thirty thousand year old viruses, ancient viruses. Um, so hence the chapter title that opens the book. Um, and while most scientists think that it's unlikely that you know a world devastating virus could be unleashed from from ice melt, it's not something that's written off. <laughs> you know, right. it, it's still within it's still within the realm of of something that we need to watch out for. Um, and, and that really intrigued me because again, there is that climate aspect that, you know, this is something that we are bringing about. Um, We're unlocking the past that should stay in the past. Um, but it's also something that, you know, could could be a vehicle for a lot of the um, stories I had already written that were tied together by this grief, by um, funerary practices that I was just really fascinated by. Wow. That's amazing. So um, you bookend literally the book, right? Because then, so like I, this passage that I just read that I loved, and then I get to the end, and you know we're here around page like two seventy nine, mm. and we get to you don't have to look it up. I'm going to read it to you, okay. <laughs> to any <laughs> listeners that might want to. Um, but then sorry, this idea, I'm a professor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it though. Yeah. Um, right with our agency and our ability, right? Mm. What we as humans can still do to the earth, and so here we are, very far in the future very far. Um, and uh, you, you wrote, I came upon my husband in the seed fields showing Nori how world builders inject possibility into each seed, adding with trained precision the chemicals and minerals we debate for thousands of years. It's not entirely up to you, my husband explained to Nori. We plant potential realities. What we see through our scopes may or may not happen, at least in this universe. So who decides? Nori asked. Some of it's chance, I explained. Hope, love, ingenuity, possibility is more than what runs through our veins, little one. Mm -hmm. I just thought what a beautiful way to end because there's a lot of sadness in this book, but you end on hope. Right. Can you talk about that? Um, I think even in the early, very early chapters, and I think the first two chapters are probably the roughest, you know. Um, yeah. But even then, I, especially in revisions, I wanted to make sure that there was a little hope you know, even in the darkest moments, and that hope would slowly compound by the time we got to the end. Um, because, you know, and I've said this to other interviewers, you know, what's the point of waking up if, if you've lost sight of that hope? Like, I think it's very easy for us to turn on the news these days and feel like it's hopeless sometimes. Um, but I think if you're able to even latch on to smaller actions, smaller moments, small goals, whether that's family or your community or doing something for the, for the larger world, um, you know, that can be enough energy to kind of push you through to the next day, to the next year. And I think that's the kind of collective thinking, uh, communal thinking that I want readers to take away from this book is, is this idea of possibility of hope and also communal action um, that we can kind of find answers to, you know, make the world a little bit of a, a little bit of a better place. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I think that's why I, I think there's a way to read this book in which there's a lot of sadness. And you've said mm -hmm. this book is about mourning mm -hmm. and grieving. But I did find at the end, I thought you are a hopeful person. Yeah. <laughs> at least you you had hope in there. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, right. was the beauty of the book. Um, so then I want to talk about the sickness itself, the plague. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, the, um, you know, the way that it kills people is it transforms different organs mm -hmm. into 
it's sort of what they shouldn't be mm -hmm. or should be, right? A heart into a brain right. or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously to me, that screams transformation mm -hmm. <laughs> as yeah. one of the big themes of the book, right? As the earth is transforming, we are transforming. Mm -hmm. I was, and uh, so I, I have to ask you, please talk about transformation in the book. In well, it, yeah, I mean, it really kind of ties to um, something that you nodded at with that, those lines that you just read, this, this idea of possibility, right? Transformation and possibility are kind of sort of like, you know, two sides of the same coin. And um, I thought that, you know, um, the plague in and of itself is insidious. And of course, it's devastating. But the virus isn't trying to kill people. It's essentially seeking possibility, it's seeking changes. And um, that's something that I tried to kind of, you know, carry forward in terms of humanity's response to a virus like this, where the possibility, you know, in our responses to something so devastating, we have agency over that. We have agency to respond in ways that could be very transformative for our individual lives, for our society, or we could respond in ways that are, you know, basically keeping the status quo. And I'm, I'm of course talking about the novel, but I'm also talking about our reality as well. <laughs> yes, I mean, it was yeah. like, this is for an English class or a literature right. class, right? A theme yeah. for a, a paper, transformation right. exactly. in, you know, Sequoia mm. Nagamatsu's, you know, debut novel. But uh, I, I also saw it, but um, there's the hope and that transformation can be good, but in, it's killing people, mm -hmm. right? So right. You clearly see it as something that could be bad. Also, yeah. it's in the book as something. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that bad side too? Yeah, I mean, there's, and maybe this is something that you know um, I've chosen to kind of I cho I've chosen to embrace a lot of good actors <laughs> in the book. Um, you know, I think there are, if if anything's fictional, there it's somewhat devoid of of a lot of bad actors. And I think there's some conspiracy theorists, and and you know, we'll, we'll see some of that in the book. Um, but the, the bad actors, the, the kind of the negative effects of the plague, um, you know, I want to sort of just nod at the fact that, yeah, it is killing people. That's something that is, is, um, devastating to, to the world, um, in the book. Um, but we don't want to dwell in the darkness, you know, as our, in terms of our responses, we need to allow ourselves to cry. We need to allow ourselves to grieve and create spaces for that grief, and we often don't do that uh, in our world. Um, but there comes a point where we need to acknowledge um, that we need to move forward into the light. We need to put down whatever support system that we have that's enabling us to stay in the dark, whether that's a virtual reality headset or a robot dog or whatever piece of technology that's helped us up to a point but is still holding us back. Yeah. So um, I want to dig back into, I think you're touching on this theme, but I want to really, you know, go into it, this question of uh, mourning. And you've said mm -hmm. this is a book about mourning. So please talk to me about that. How do you, how do you see that? Yeah. Um, I mean, the early seeds of the book, it really began, I think, with my own grief and kind of coming to terms with losses of my grandfather. And there's just a lot of, I think, certainly loss there, but also guilt just in, in terms of not being there in, in the way that I should have. And um, I realized that, you know, both in my experiences and, and with, with other people, uh, death isn't something that we talk about. It's a very uncomfortable subject and it's a subject that um, has become very commercialized. You know, you cry and then you become, then you plan a funeral and then you worry about money. 
And there's not a lot of space in 20th, 21st century to actually honor the dead in the way that they probably should be. And, and to actually have a dialogue with our memories about, about that person. And so in the book, um, I explore different ways that corporations were both exploiting this mass death because of the plague, because they wanted to fill their pockets, but at the same time, they were providing a necessary service in terms of reimagining this grief and mourning and providing a space for people to actually say goodbye in a world where our traditional forms of grief were no longer possible because of quarantine, because of um, you know hospital overloads, because of morgue overloads, and so on and so forth. And we, we saw that to some degree with with COVID. You know, people have not been able to kind of go into hospitals and, and hold their loved ones' hands. There have been iPad goodbyes. Um, but even when my father passed away like about a year and a half ago, like one of my first reactions was to tweet about it. And I found that to be a very cathartic experience, this kind of community of mourning with near strangers on the internet. Yeah, amazing. And, and I feel like you just handed me the perfect segue into talking about um, uh, City of Laughter, right? <laughs> which is um, a story in which, uh, well, you why don't you sum it up for me, please? Well, uh, you know, so at this point, the plague has, has um, reached the mainland United States and it's infected um, children first, and hospitals have been overloaded. And as a response to this, uh, the government, in concert with some corporations, have created this theme park to, I guess, as a, as a gentle alternative, alternative, if you want to call it that, uh, for families to spend one final day, a final day of joy and laughter with their children. Um, and the final ride is, is a roller coaster. It's, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's an actual thought experiment from an architect. Um, that is, um, you know, it's essentially a series of loops um, that induces um, euphoria and unconsciousness and ultimately um, euthanizes you. And so um, the story follows one of the employees of this park as he forms a bond with one of the children. Yeah, I mean, um, it, that story is so sad, right? It is heartbreaking. You're talking about euthanizing children, giving them a gentle death. Um, you know, the parents can be there and, you know, see their children off. And yet at the same time, this employee is wearing this giant mouse costume, right? right? And talking about sweating inside. And there's this, the absurdity of modernity, <laughs> you know, built into this story. And um, I couldn't help but wonder if this was also a commentary on the absurdity of, you know, the presence of Twitter, for example, in our life or the technology, right? Or us not being able to face grief head on and instead, you know, making a city of laughter after as a way in. I mean, some of it is kind of like a not absurdity, but the fact that the absurdity is sometimes necessary, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like what we might sort of see as absurd or, you know, maybe a little dark is actually something that's kind of comforting. Yes. Um, you know, like, and, and I think that really sort of like goes to show like how much we've changed culturally mm -hmm. because of something like social media, you know, yeah. our behavior is just, uh, mind-boggling to somebody, let's say, if we're talking to ourselves from the 80s, and we told them that, oh, yeah, I, 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 told, I told thousands of people that my father died, and it was really helpful. Um, it's just such a relatively new phenomenon um, that I think we still need to actually articulate. 
I love that answer because here you go again with the hope, right? Mm -hmm. Injecting mm -hmm. hope into mm -hmm. modernity and where the world is today. So, and, and and that is what I think is in the story in the end too, right? That there is in this horrible plague, mm -hmm. there are good ways to die, right? right. If that is possible. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. All right. So I want to move on to a different story. Um, it was called, I believe it's called Pig Sun. Um, <laughs> and a, so please, again, tell me, what is Pig Sun about? Well, um, so at this point, um, with a scientist in this uh, chapter, he's actually the father of, of um, the little boy who died in a previous chapter. And he, he failed to save him. He, his, his work is um, focusing on creating human organs in organ donor pigs. Um, so that he can buy people more time. And he couldn't do that for his son. Um, the, the pigs are genetically modified, and one particular pig develops the capacity for human speech, um, at least via telepathy. And um, the scientists- I just love that you said that yeah. with a straight face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just tell you, this is why yeah. I wanted you to tell yeah. me what the right, story right. was about. Yes, <laughs> well, it's you. become normalized, you know, it's- yes. um, uh, in, in my mind, you know, it's just it's notorious PIG as part of the family, right? And yes, <laughs> <laughs> that is the best um, name ever. Right, Wait, can yeah. you say it again, please? Just so all of our yeah. listeners hear the name it's of the no pig is <laughs> notorious PIG. Yeah, Amazing. right. Yeah, um, and you know, this pig um, is, forms a bond, and, and vice versa. The scientist forms a bond with this pig, and and this pig kind of becomes a bridge for this narrator to find some closure, I think, over the loss of his son, you know, and, and the pig ultimately does, you know, kind of sacrifice himself and acknowledges the state of the world, not, I think, be, not just to be, you know, not to help the world at large, but I think the pig makes the sacrifice ultimately because he loves the people that have cared about him. He does it for his family. But he loves the people that have cared about him, and yet he was made as an experiment, mm -hmm. right? And right. people want to kill him. Right for his so can you talk about that duality there yeah i mean like certainly that when, when i you know thought about um this chapter animal rights was kind of like at the forefront of my mind how we exploit um you know non-human um beings um on our planet to forward innovation or just to exploit them for no good reason whatsoever um and so i thought about you know what would happen to, um, you know, what's kind of the moral question if these animals could speak, you know, and what would that relationship look like, you know, um, between a scientist and his his subject? Um, and so, yes, um, you know, ultimately, you know, these pigs are 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 killed, and in order to sort of save humanity, um, or at least buy them more time. Um, most of the pigs don't get a say in that or a choice in that. This pig does um, ultimately sort of chooses, you know, to to help out um, in part because there's this weird connection between the pig and and the scientist's dead son. It's like, I want to do this for Fitch. I want to do this for the, for, your, for your dead son. Um, and, and, you know, I think part of the impetus, part of the origins of this, of this chap particular chapter, I think came from, um, you know, I, I never let me go. I think was was a narrative that was um, not yes. too far from my mind when when, yes. I, when I thought about this. Yes, I'm so glad you said that because yeah. I was 
that I was totally thinking about that book as yeah. I was reading it. Um, but at the same time, right, the scientist is finding comfort with a pig, mm -hmm. not a human, right. right? Not his ex-wife, not, right? He's with mm -hmm. a pig. Can you talk about that? Well, I think it's it's valuable for, for readers um, to recognize humanity in the non-human. Mm -hmm. um, and because I, I think we often talk about humanity, defining humanity as having certain qualities that really aren't um, exclusive <laughs> to our species. Yes. Um, we, we've, we, we know this. Um, mm -hmm. Scientists have studied this behavior. Yes. We know that dolphins, we know that pigs, we know these other animals have capacity for particular emotions and community and even language. Yes. Um, and yet, and yet, and yet. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was important to kind of ha uh, have that message in this chapter. There is already a non-human, an extraterrestrial alien presence in the novel that is in some ways the most human being in the book because we have this billion, you know, this character that's existed for billions of years is immortal yes. and is kind of practicing humanity, practicing being human over the years. So what right. could be more human than that? You know, you're right. failing up, kind of failing upward. And, <laughs> but I'm so um, glad that you really have, right, this animal view in here right. because, um, so I have a, a very strong vegan teenager in my house who reminds us all the time that mm -hmm. if you ask children, right, they value animals in their house as much right, as they yeah. value any of the humans in their house. And as we get older, we tend to forget that, the value, mm -hmm. right? That yeah. you can find companionship and comfort and everything you can, right, with a human that you can with an animal, right? even if the animal, right? And so it was, the pig was very human in many ways, very yeah. animal mm -hmm. farm or other, <laughs> other right? right? Well, except not in that sense, yeah. but yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I really loved that part. I feel like animal mm. lovers will also love your book. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So we're getting towards the end. I didn't even get to ask you about Calvino yet. Oh. But, but, so uh, we were sharing our love of Italo Calvino before we started, but I've got to go forward to my last two questions because all of my listeners absolutely love to hear about this from debut authors. So what was the hardest part about getting this book published? Uh, I think, um, you know, I initially started this. This book was really, I think, um, uh, the trajectory of writing it is as long as the trajectory of me being a writer. You know, it, it, it took me a very long time to realize this in this particular form, and so I think you know, if if writers are kind of in the trenches, feeling despair, which I think we all feel sometimes, I just remind them that was a very long road to write this book, and there were times where I felt like I'm not sure what this is going to be. I'm not sure what shape this should take. I'm not sure if this will ever get published. Um, but I kept with it because I ultimately believed in the project and it evolved over time. Um, it evolved as I came across new books that gave me more tools. It evolved as I got my agent and we had dialogues about what this could be or should be. Mm -hmm. It evolved as I came across an article about a plague, as I bought a robot dog, <laughs> so on and so forth. Yeah. And so I think it, writing this book has really taught me that, you know, writing a novel or writing something as expansive as, as this, you just really have to allow yourself to explore and let your characters and let your world, um, you know, take you where the book needs to be. Um, Can you versus, quantify long time? How long? About over 10 years. Over yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Wow. And you stuck with it. So yeah. was it, was there any point where it was just where you're like, I, I, like, what was the hardest moment where you thought, I can't, I don't know what I'm going to do? I mean, as far as the writing, I think I did keep with it because I think what helped me is that I, I, I 
because it is a novel and stories, um, I, I, I sat down to work on particular people Got it. That, I, that I cared about. And I was able to kind of think about it in more concrete, specific, finite terms. But I also suggest this to my students who are working on more traditional novels, is that you don't want to sit down and, and say that you're working on the novel, because that'll create a, a writer's block for you. Yes. You know, sit down and write a scene, sit down and write a, a chapter, but don't write, don't ever sit down at a desk and tell yourself you're writing a novel. Yes, um, I love that. Well, that was my next question for you is what kind of advice do you have for new writers? <laughs> and I feel like that is brilliant. Novels come together scene by scene by scene, mm -hmm. not yeah. as a novel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so do you have any other advice that you can offer a new writer? <sighs> um, I'd say don't worry about genre conventions um, or what you think the market wants because you know by the time you finish it the market's going to change and you know I I, I, had to, I think I learned this one the hard way I think especially as a as, you, as an Asian American writer um, and the landscape I think has changed a lot for for writers of color but you know when I first started out I thought that the reading public needed a certain kind of story from um, a Japanese writer you know, and I wasn't wrong <laughs> because um, a lot of literature being produced as even as, you know, well-written and um, deserving as, as those works are, often were coming from a place of um, othering communities and writing for, I think, a white audience, not certainly, not always writing on the terms of that author. Um, and so just write for yourself ultimately and, and don't worry about your story fitting into certain boxes, create your own box if you need to. I love that. Create your own box. That's great. Sequoia, thank you so much for joining me today. I had such a great time talking to you about this amazing new book, How High We Go in the Dark. Run, don't walk to get your copy, and may you sell many, many copies. Thank, thank you, you for having me. Bye, everybody.